This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back. Last week, I spoke to New York Times bestselling author David M. Rubenstein about his new book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. This week, I'm sitting down with someone who is also taking a look at some of America's most influential thinkers. I believe that learning to dispel negativity from my life, including the small stuff, has given me the balance and strong heart I need to be successful. It is probably one of the most important life lessons I've learned, and I'm grateful for it. I don't need to levitate or be one with the universe. I work in New York, not Hollywood. But I strive for a certain internal evenness, positivity, calm, serenity now. Seinfeld fans will get that. Alec Ross is currently a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School and a board partner at Amplo, that's a global venture capital firm. He was a distinguished senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. During the Obama administration, Alec served as a senior advisor for innovation to the Secretary of State and also served as the convener for the Technology and Media Policy Committee on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and on the Obama-Biden presidential transition. So he's done a ton of things. I love this interview. I think he's got incredible insight. Take a listen here. Alec, welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast. You have a new book called The Raging 2020s. Companies, countries, people, and the fight for our future. I can't think of a better title for what we're going right? through right now. Describe what you're trying to do with this book. So I think the world needs a book that describes the car crash that seems to have taken place at the intersection of business, government, and citizens. And so what this tries to do is help people understand what's happening uh, and what the road forward ought to be. And... When people think of the 2020s, that's, of course, the roaring 20s. Um, why the raging 20s now? You know, raging has sort of a dual connotation. You know, raging can be angry. You know, this decade, the 2020s, has gotten off to kind of a tricky little start. And how it ends could either be raging angry or it could be rage, raging the way my 18-year-old son thinks of it. You know, raging like a great party. Uh, the things that we do between now and then will determine whether it's the good kind of raging or the bad kind of raging. So maybe let's let's start start with um, where you start in in the book, and and especially you and I are, are friends, so so everybody knows I, Alec and I have uh, long known each other, um, and we spent a little time together this summer, and I had just read the chapter about shareholder and stakeholder capitalism, and I would love for you to describe for people what you're thinking in in regards to this because. If you look at some of the um, 
polling on how different demographic groups and age groups in particular feel about capitalism, you'll get very different um, thinking, especially with younger people. Sure. So if I were to divide stakeholder capitalism and shareholder capitalism into, into sort of two different things, I'd do it almost by time period. Stakeholder capitalism is the kind of capitalism that we practiced in the United States from the time World War II was over into sort of the late 1980s. You know, this was a time when, you know, every medium-sized town in America or bigger had a headquarters of a company in it. It was when people would go to work for a company for a generation at the end of the generation and at the end of the generation they would most likely have a pension people employees in the company would go sit on the local boards of directors for the nonprofit organizations for the arts organizations and then something happened beginning at the very end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s where th this concept of shareholder capitalism took root which was the only purpose of business is to maximize profit over the very short term. So if it made sense to fire somebody um, when business turned down just a little bit, you are compelled by the doctrine of shareholder capitalism to fire them. If you had a headquarters in West Virginia or Iowa or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, shareholder capitalism says, you know what, you need to move that headquarters to Delaware or to someplace that has zero taxes in it. So. A lot of the faith, I think, that's been lost in capitalism has become because it's become sort of a more ruthless form of capitalism that doesn't recognize that there are a broader set of stakeholders than just the shareholders. We've got employees. We've got community members where people around where people work. We've got we've got um, the climate around the around the business. And so it's trying to bring back what I would call the good side of capitalism as opposed to this more ruthless form of capitalism, which is why so many young people right now are actually turning against capitalism and embracing socialism, which to my ears is just crazy, but it's it's more and more popular. You grew up in West Virginia, and how would, um, how would your home state look different today if this idea of the shareholder hadn't been the thing that you had to, um, under law, you know, pay attention to. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give a really concrete example. Um, there were a bunch of chemical companies uh, that ran along the river in West Virginia, Union Carbide, DuPont, and a number of others. And at one point, it became more profitable for the companies to take all those factories and move them to Mexico and to India. And when you're on the board of directors of one of those companies, by law, you aren't allowed to say, well, we ought to think a little bit more about the communities and what the effect on the communities would be if we move this factory from West Virginia to India. By law, under shareholder capitalism, if you save a nickel, you are compelled to move that factory to India. And, and what we're seeing now is that while that may have made sense over the short term, it actually wasn't necessarily in our country's interests and our community's interests, or even for that matter, the shareholders' interests over the longer term. And we're paying for it now. So I, I, I'm curious about what you hear from CEOs. You do a lot of work um, with entrepreneurs, um, but there's also then the more sort of, like, for lack of a better word, the establishment of CEOs. Um, how do they think about this now? 
there's been a real change, I think, in the perception of, of CEOs between whether they need to just be squeezing out every last penny of every last dollar for the short term or whether they should be thinking for the longer term in a broader set of stakeholders. There's a very powerful lobbying organization of big businesses in Washington called the Business Roundtable, and they actually changed their doctrine. From, they changed sort of their view on the purpose of business from maximizing profits over the, over the short term to this view of stakeholder capitalism. And these aren't like a bunch of ooey-gooey, super lefty CEOs. I mean, these are hardcore, serious business men and women. And what they're saying is, you know what, we do need to be attentive to our communities. We do need to not fire our employers the first second a spreadsheet or an MBA kid tells us we need to because it's hurting us over the medium and longer term. So when I think about the difference between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, honestly, I think of it as much as anything about short-term capitalism or long-term capitalism. Mm -hmm. When you think uh, about the startups that you work with now in, in part of your work outside of being an author and a, and a professor, um, do you think that those entrepreneurs, those younger CEOs, or may, I don't know if they're, I don't, I'm assuming that they're younger, um, will approach their businesses differently? Some do and some don't. And look, I'm going to speak undiplomatically for a minute here. Oh, there go for it. That's the, this of, is the place for know, that. I mean, look, there are a lot of people who I think have been inspired by sort of Mark Zuckerberg and others who look up to sort of the brotastic boy billionaires of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and they emulate them. Um, sure, they're within this younger generation, people who want to run their companies with a little bit more balance. They want women to be able to have families without having to leave the workplace. But I got to tell you, I do think that a lot of the younger entrepreneurs do view the sort of boy billionaire model as something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. And the problem with this is that model does create a bunch of boy billionaires, but it doesn't create the sort of strong middle class and upper middle class that, again, a more enlightened form of capitalism produces. And what I'm scared of, Dana, is when I see the data that shows the result of a lot of this is younger people increasingly turning their eyes toward socialism or, you know, different economic forms that I personally don't believe. And I'm a capitalist, but I want capitalism to work a little bit better and for more people. Do you think that some of the ideas coming from a Senator Marco Rubio or Senator Hawley, um, of which I have to say, I'm, uh, my instincts are skeptical, However, I wonder if it's a little bit more in line with what you're describing here. You know, I honestly don't know, Dana. You know, mm -hmm. we'd have to see how these things are fleshed out. I think that I think that there are instincts among, you know, some folks in both parties right now. I think they're beginning to see that ca that a lot of the way that business works right now, it's not working for enough people. But what one specific aspect of this that I think that is important um, is antitrust. I think that across the political spectrum from, you know, the most conservative member of the United States Senate to the most liberal member of the United States Senate, I think we're beginning to see, oh, my goodness, a, 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 an economy that has so many monopolies in it isn't really capitalism because at the core of capitalism is competition. So when I do see Senator Rubio and others beginning to fight monopoly, 
I think that that's good because I do believe that competition is at the heart of capitalism. And I also believe that, that there's something within the American character that likes, that likes competition. Mm -hmm. and, and the way things have evolved, we're seeing less and less and less competition out there. It seems like there's one company that makes just about everything. And that's a big reason, frankly, why we see so many shortages right now. That's why we're running out of products is because only one company is making the batteries. Only one company is making this specific steel, steel fitting. We've, we've become a country of monopolies. Hmm. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You have an entire chapter about workers, and I'm really curious and interested about how the pandemic has changed things for workers as well. You know, there was a Wall Street Journal had a piece a few weeks ago called The Great Resignation, and it was all these people just resigning from their jobs, like just having a, a different... Uh, direction that they wanted to take their life after the pandemic. And in some ways, it feels like the workers are in the driver's seat now. And I would include women in that, kind of. Now, during the pandemic, so many women um, had to leave work in order to take care of children. Uh, when schools closed, because kids can't sit there and be expected to deal with Zoom all day long by themselves. Um, however, I do feel that, for example, for years, women were saying, we just need some more flexibility in our workday. We would like some job sharing responsibilities, or I just need to be able to work in the evenings, et cetera. And I, I think corporate America was pretty skeptical of all of that. Then all of a sudden, we had this major experiment, forced experiment of working from home. And it turns out, oh, actually, people will work from home, and they like that flexibility. And I think that is actually kind of here to stay. But I'd love your thoughts on it. Well, I hope it's here to, I hope it's here to stay, too. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, one of, the pan one of the things that the pandemic revealed to us is who the real indispensable workers are. You know, I feel, I feel like too often we looked at the people who were delivering us our food or, you know, working on our farms and viewed, viewed people doing that kind of labor as it's, it's sort of like they're doing a lower kind of work. And one of the things the pandemic re revealed is they're indispensable. We can't live without these people. And we certainly wouldn't have made it through a pandemic without them. Now, I do think that there's going to be some additional flexibility, particularly for women coming out of the pandemic. But the big question for me, Dana, is it really comes down to in part class. So for knowledge workers, like if you go to, if you go to work and you're wearing, you're wearing a suit, uh, if you've got a college degree, um, then I have a feeling you're going to have a job that's going to allow for more flexibility. What I don't know yet, and where I'm a little bit more worried and skeptical, is sort of the working class. Um, to what degree is America's working class going to come out of this better and stronger? And so while, I see, we're, while we're seeing a lot of resignations, people from the working class who are resigning, they're going to have to find another job before too long because most of the people in the working class can't just live off what's in their checking account for months on end. And unfortunately, you know, unions historically have played a big role in helping pr protect the working class. And the state of America's unions right now is incredibly weak. How much um, 
is the responsibility here on addressing the issues that you bring up on the the government's responsibility or the private sector's responsibility? I think it's a mix. You know, when I think about a social contract, when I think about a society that works, it's when there's a sort of equilibrium between businesses, governments, and citizens. And I do think that um, we don't want the government to do too much, but there are things that only government can do. Um, what I do believe is that if when businesses can engage responsibly on these, then we don't need the government to get involved. Because a lot of the time, let's be honest, the solution to something in West Virginia is not necessarily the right solution for something in New York City. And if there's a federal government resolution, you know, law or regulation that sets something out that makes the regulation the same thing in rural West Virginia as it is in New York City, it might work, but it might also not work. So what I would prefer, what I would strongly prefer is to see businesses lead on this because I think it's how we end up getting the best results. Yeah. Um, and we'll see if, if they decide to do that, right? <laughs> because th the thing about Congress is that it's uh, completely, as David Rubenstein explained to us in our podcast recently, is that it's just so sclerotic. Like no, nothing, it's, nothing's look, getting done. No, it's terrible. I write about this in my book. I, there are three things that I think are, are keeping us from getting anything done in our federal government. One, what I call vitocracy, where there's so much political division uh, and it's so easy for one for one party to block the other thing. It's like each party has a, a veto. The second thing is kludgeocracy. Kludge, uh, kludge is a software patch. It's something that takes a messy piece of software and just sort of pastes it together, sort of like with like with duct tape. And our government has grown so big and so complex that it's become really difficult for us to do things like build bridges. We were great at building bridges a hundred years ago. We built subway systems. We you know, created a highway system 70 years ago. Those things seem to be impossible to do today, and they're impossible in part because it's become so kludgy. It's become so complex. And then lastly, brain drain. You know, it used to be the case that a lot of the best and brightest would go into government. There are still fantastic people working in government. But more often than not, if you're getting out of college at 22 or 23 years old, and you have a choice between going to work in government and going to work in business, these days, people are going into business. So the smarts oftentimes are in mm -hmm. business. Yeah, I read that. I uh, thought that was really interesting. And, and I just think it's true, right? You look at, um, well, you know, but in a way, it used to be that you would um, have a business or your career, get some success under your belt, and then run for office. Now you have people who are you know, majoring in political science, and they're intending to run for Congress as soon as they're of age, to do so. And then I do think like they either stay in it as uh, career politicians or they realize pretty quickly like, oh, like, there's more to life than this. And they might want to go and make some money or whatever it might be. No, that's exactly right. And it's worse yet for people who aren't going to run for office and are just going to take like a normal job in government. You know, what we're seeing right now is, you know, if somebody is working at the local health department, that's a really important job. But if they're making, like somebody is making $45,000 a year at the local health department and the local health insurance company says, hey, you're making $45,000, how do you like to make $65,000 to come work for us? 
This happens all day, every day. And what we're seeing is a lot of those people working in local government, in state government, and in the federal government who aren't elected officials, we see them getting pulled into, into private business. And it sort of hollows out the ability of government to get much done. Yeah. Uh, let me ask, let's step back and maybe talk a little bit about uh, you and how you approach um, work. And you're, you're a father of two, um, lovely wife who is an educator. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is just how people figure out how to manage work and family. I feel like you have a really good handle on this. I, I know that when I say that to people, they'll think, really, you think I do? Because <laughs> nobody thinks that they are doing it well. But I think that you and Felicity do um, e exhibit some really good um, habits that others can pick up on. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that and a little bit of maybe about your adventures in Italy. Sure, sure. So first of all, let's, yeah, I got to be forthcoming here. It's a lot easier doing this when you begin to make some money. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I'm just being totally uncensored with you, Dana. Yep. You know, at one point, you know, when we had, you know, the little kids and, you know, we weren't making a whole lot of money, you know, it was a lot harder. Um, but one of the things that I will say is that one of the things you, when you do start making some money is it does enable you to hire people to do a lot of things that you would have had to do yourself before. Money mm -hmm. doesn't buy happiness, but it does buy time. So I do recognize that that sort of privilege has helped us out a lot. Mm -hmm. um, the way that we've sort of managed this is Felicity, my wife, she has sort of a job job. She's, a, she's an elementary school teacher, public school teacher. And then I've created this sort of crazy portfolio life where I'm a professor, I write books, I'm a partner in a venture capital fund, um, but I have total control over my time. So if I get fussy about, um, you know, being loaded up on my schedule, the only person I can complain to is myself. Oh, I write about that in my book. Like, that you're responsible. Yeah. You, you are, are responsible for your schedule. No, and look, there's... People think that the most important thing you have to manage is your checkbook, and you do. But the thing that I would argue is even more important is managing your time. You know, we have to be as careful about managing our time as we are managing our money. So Felicity, you know, she has a, a given schedule. And then what I've done is I've sort of built my own schedule around it where I'm still working. I'm, and I'm working plenty hard. But it's been organized in a way that enables me to do a lot of different things that I otherwise might not be able to do, you know, like cook breakfast and cook dinner a lot of the time or, you know, go to the kids soccer games and things like this. So it's and I've chosen to do this at the expense of some money and frankly, at the expense of some power. You know, mm -hmm. if I had, you know, gone and worked at a financial services firm or something like that, I would have made more money, but I wouldn't have had the flexibility so part of it is, you know, this trade-off between these four things, money, power, fame, and independence. You know, you sort of, you got to slide, you, if you slide one of those up, you got to slide another one down mm -hmm. in terms of allocation. So that's, mm. that's part of how I, that's part of how I focus on it. And then, you know, you're nice to ask about Italy. We're also doing this crazy thing right now where we're splitting some of our time between the United States and Italy. And, and Dana, I know you have... <laughs> Well, your Instagram you is just like, I, I have such Instagram envy when I look at your uh, uh, <laughs> post because it really is, uh, it's beautiful. And it seems to me has been um, a very wonderful time in your life. It's been, it's been incredible. And you want to know why we did this is my 16 year old daughter. 
Um, you know, because these universities would periodically invite me to come be a guest professor for a year. And my little daughter, at one point, my wife and I were talking about it. I was like, oh, you know, these universities in Italy and England and these places have all invited me to come teach for a year. And my daughter looks up at me and she goes, Dad, why don't, why don't we just do it? Mm. Why don't you just say yes? And my wife and I sort of looked at each other and blinked. <laughs> like, can we do that? Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and so I'll be darned if we didn't move to Italy last <laughs> year as a family. And it was incredible. Yeah. It was it was a, it was a wonderful year from, you know, the wisdom of my 16 year old daughter. Wait right there. We'll have more next. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line. It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm a little obsessed with um, more recent studies about men in America, young men in America, deciding not to pursue college. Um, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to trade schools. It almost is like they're dropping out of society before they even get going. Uh, while girls and young women are getting all the degrees and really, you know, figuring it out on their own and, and becoming independent young women. And I am a little bit um, worried, I guess. I, 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 I almost feel like I'm kind of not sure how to think about it, I, but I have a feeling that this is not good, especially no, for the I, long term. And I wonder if you give this some thought or what you think is happening. I see it, Dana. I see exactly what you do and the, and the data backs it up. And it's kind of scary. It's sort of like we've got this little demographic of sort of hipster slacker guys and young women working really hard. And what's interesting is there are a lot of, you know, these young folks who couple up and they're sharing apartments and the woman is working her heart. The young woman, the 24 year old, the 25 year old is working her heart out. And the 24, 25-year-old guy is, you know, his big choice of the day is, you know, where is he going to go to get his morning cappuccino? Um, and I also see it, honestly, in my own hiring. So, you know, I'm also a partner in a venture capital fund, and we oftentimes hire lots of people in the beginning of their careers. And we are hiring more and more young women. Mm-hmm. Um who are demonstrating a stronger work ethic, um, who are showing a little bit more hustle, are less fussy. So I don't know what caused this. Do you have any idea what caused this, Dana? I don't know what's behind I this. Do, I, I don't know exactly. I would love to read a little bit more about it. But I do remember one thing in particular. I just remember like it was yesterday. And it's sort of interesting because it wasn't a big momentous um, announcement or anything. It was when I worked at the White House there was these. Uh, we were there was some initiative that was happening for um, you know girls and education etc. And I remember Mrs. Bush saying, just sort of like as part of the conversation, that we really need to focus on boys as well. And you know, she, as an educator and a librarian, was concerned about what was happening in their early life. Like all this wonderful and important attention was being paid to girls. Again, that was a good. It looks it looks like it worked. <laughs> Look like it worked. I mean, that's better. Uh, but 
it, was it at the expense of the confidence of boys? And what are the long-term consequences for relationships even going forward, you know, 20 years from now? It's interesting. It's like we've got this, I, I won't say it's the whole generation, but what I'll say is there's a huge number of what almost seem to be like emasculated young men. You know, these young men who have very little sense of themselves. You know, they've got this sense of ennui. You know, they've got this sort of disconnect. They, they seem sort of disconnected from the world. They're always on their phones. They're playing video games. And again, I don't know what really caused this, but I do see it. And I do see young women asserting themselves in ways that oftentimes young men are not. And I'll tell you what, even for the, the research on this book, The Raging 2020s, I had a little team of researchers. You know, I had, four, I had four young people, you know, all people in their 20s working for me. And it was three women and one man. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a pretty serious interview process. And I'm sitting here thinking about it. I think if it were, I think if it were eight it very well may have been six or seven women and one or two fellows. Um, but again, they were the ones that were demonstrating the hustle, the preparation, and, you know, the rigor in the yeah. work. And do you think that this start, like, for example, did this start, in your opinion, uh, and may, I, I mean, who knows, obviously conducting social experiments on podcasts, mm -hmm. but, you know, West Virginia... And that whole area as those jobs moved, right? You wrote a book that your last book was called The Industries of the Future. And yes. those jobs have been changing and they're going to change again. And you write about artificial intelligence in the raging 2020s as well. And that's where things are headed. And one of the things you say is that um, there could be great things about innovation. You say it could bring promise and peril. And I'm that's not right. sure which one prevails. Well, I'll tell you. I, you mentioned West Virginia. I see it, the same dynamic in West Virginia, where my parents still live, and in Baltimore. So it's interesting that the two places couldn't be, they couldn't be more different. You know, West Virginia, where I grew up, all white, rural. Baltimore, overwhelmingly African-American and urban. And in West Virginia, you know, I went back and visited my parents last mm -hmm. month. What you see are the women carrying the families, particularly in these younger families. A lot of drug abuse, a lot of opioid problems concentrated overwhelmingly with the men. And then in Baltimore, you know, it's the African-American women who are keeping these communities from completely collapsing. You know, the violence, the incarceration, the drug abuse, the disconnection from community and self is very male. And so this is a strange American dynamic that touches our inner cities, our rural communities, and it seems everywhere in between. Wow. Well, that is, um, it's, it's an interesting thing and maybe something that you can uh, <laughs> be thinking about. Um, one of the points I made about the industries of the future is I really felt like it was a great parenting book um, because it gave parents some ideas for what their kids needed to be studying in order to be ready for those jobs of the future. I think of the raging 2020s in, in some, somewhat in the same way. If you were to give some parents advice today, if you have elementary school children, what do you think they should be making sure that they are studying and focused on? Is it the STEM classes? Is it languages? Is it uh, artificial intelligence? Where, yeah, so do, where would you point them? It, it's, it's interdisciplinary learning. So here's one of the very strange things about 
increasingly powerful artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. That which grows, that which makes us more human, most human, grows increasingly important. So, sure, you absolutely have to have technology skills. If you can get skills in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, you're not going to be hungry. You know what? You're going to get a you're going to get a working middle class job. You're all set. Uh, but if you want your you know your child to grow up and not just get a middle class job, but you know hopefully be a leader and you know have some upward mobility in those jobs, then what I see is it's it's a combination of something technical, maybe something in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, but where you have a really resilient young person is when it, when that is combined with skills that we associate with the humanities, good communication skills an understanding of behavioral psychology, a strong sense of emotional intelligence, creativity. Uh, so it's when you bring those kinds of skills together with something technical, then you've got, then you've got a young person who's really built to succeed. And, you know, just one other thing that I'll mention, you brought up languages. I would say computer languages and foreign languages, um, both of those, you can't really start too early. Computer code is the, is the alphabet that most, m- much of the future is going to be written in. And if you can code, then, you know, goodness gracious, you're going to be in really good shape coming out of college. Foreign languages, too. You know, look, the world is not going to grow less global. Um, to, you know, my, my kids speak Chinese. And, um, you know, my son got a fantastic summer internship because I think the place was blown away by the idea of a young white guy who could speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would really encourage a focus on languages, computer languages and and foreign languages. All right. So I um, read I, I read your book, but then I reread the conclusion before um, this interview. And I, I think my last question to you is, is, is this. Um, I, th- I feel like you and I are similar in that we are practical or pragmatic optimists. You know, it's like we're realists. Um, with that, sounds like, that sounds like us, Dana. That I think so. Um, I, I, th- I, think that, I think that's what we are. I think so. I don't want to put words in your mouth or des- describe you that way. But um, when you think about you, you know, the reaction to your book so far, again, it's the raging 2020s, companies, countries, people, and the fight for our future. Are you optimistic? I am. You know, first of all, look, only optimists change the future. Only optimists change the future. So even just the very act of writing a book is itself an act of optimism. Why am I also an optimist? I'm an optimist because, you know, it's out of the most, it's out of the abyss um, that we, we oftentimes find our character. You know, the artist Pablo Picasso said, every act of creation, every act of creation begins with an act of destruction. And I can't help but think that coming out of the destruction of COVID, uh, that which makes us as Americans our best will emerge. I do think we're going to come out of this with the ability to imagine and invent the future. I do think we're going to come out of this rethinking some of our assumptions about capitalism and making sure that it works for more people. And so, look, I choose to be optimistic. I do know that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of conflict. There's going to be a lot of difficulty. But I think we have the solutions in front of us. What we need is, is the courage to sort, of, to sort of shoulder them through. Well, I love that. 
I lo- and I, I love you. I love you, Felicity, your whole family. Um, I encourage people to read this book. It gives a, you know, a lot to think about. And certainly follow Alec on Instagram for all of the amazing pictures from Italy and other adventures. Alec Ross, thank you so much. Thank you, Dana. I think the thing that I took away from that conversation the most is that only optimists can change for the better and for the future. So let's all keep that in mind. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.